Comet Podcast. I'm Violet Luca, digital editor. This week's episode takes up the practice of criticism from another angle. A.O. Scott, a chief film critic for the New York Times, has a new book titled Better Living Through Criticism, How to Think About Art, Pleasure, Beauty, and Truth, which is less a straightforward manual, or self-help book as the title slyly suggests, than a philosophical inquiry into the profession. Pulling from a variety of writers and artists, from Philip Larkin to Immanuel Kant to George Steiner to Marina Abramovic, Scott questions the nature of taste and how it is shaped, the longevity and purpose of criticism, and the limitations of certain rhetorical devices. Scott and Matt Zoller-Seitz of RogerEbert.com and New York Magazine visited Film Comment to discuss these ideas and more. We now go to their conversation. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment podcast. I'm Violet Luca, digital editor, and today I'm joined by... A.O. Scott. I'm a chief film critic at the New York Times and um, the author of a new book called Better Living Through Criticism. I'm Matt Zoller-Seitz. I'm the editor-in-chief of RogerEbert.com, the TV critic for New York Magazine, and the author of the Wes Anderson Collection. Thank you both for coming today. Uh, so we're going to be discussing um, Better Living Through Criticism. When I was you know, reading about the book, one of the things you said that had sort of been the impetus to write it was back in 2011, this outgrowth of user reviews, uh, Yelp culture, Amazon.com reviews of things. And you rightly point out that it's really more of consumer advice and it's it's underpinned by consumption and not really criticism. And you get into that in like the last chapter of the mm-hmm. book. But could you sort of expand on that? And, and, and it is I think also it's connected to the current like superhero glut that we're going through right now. Yeah, I mean, I I started out, I kind of was reading, there were a number of pieces and comments that were floating around in in, in 2011, which felt, uh, in retrospect, you know, kind of felt like a a low moment, an anxious moment in in the history of of print media and and traditional media. And there was a lot of um, anxiety and and dread um, at places like the New York Times and elsewhere about the future of the whole enterprise. Um, And at the same time, there was a lot of kind of triumphalism about, well, we have all this cool new stuff out on on the internet. We have have Yelp scores, we have Amazon algorithms, uh, we have the like button on Facebook. um, And, you know, we don't need critics anymore. Everyone can just go out and and find out what they like and groove on and and hang out with their friends and all have a good time. And, and, um, and people like me and Matt um, would would be, you know, kind of uh, fade away like dinosaurs. And I thought, is this true? Um, if it is, I hope it's, you know, it takes its time so I can at least, uh, you know, collect my 401k. But um, but I was also thinking, well, what would it what would it mean? And 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 what is the relationship between um, this other stuff that's going on? Um, is that a form of criticism? And by the way, what is the point of uh, of more formal, more professional um, criticism in the first place. So I, I, I really I started out thinking about my job and its future, and very quickly um, the book turned into something else, which was more of an investigation of what links these different activities. Why do we Why do we care about things? Why do we like what we like? How do we have these discussions, whether as professionals or as um, regular people going to movies, watching television, reading books about what we like and why we like it and what its value is. 
Because we are living in a very corporatized era, but we it's not always apparent. Absolutely. Um, and I think one thing that I want to always um, defend is the importance of, of, of independent voices and, and, um, and, and against the grain thinking. I mean, we, we certainly um, are encouraged to, uh, to be consumers in a, in a, in a kind of a, a passive, um, simple way. And there's all of this wonderful stuff for us to consume, um, some of which is, a lot of which is produced <laughs> and distributed to us um, by very large, heavily capitalized entities like, you know, television networks and, and movie studios and publishing companies and big museums. Um, but we have to protect ourselves in a way. We have to, we have to be sure that we guard our own independence um, and that we, in a way, don't sell our own experiences uh, too cheaply. <laughs> You're like, I love buying stuff. I have nothing to add. I have nothing to add to that. I, uh, I, I just got a cup of coffee, and it's great, and that's all I have to say. No, I, I just, you know, it's kind of strange, because my brand is um, too intellectual for the people who want to know if they should see it or not, and not intellectual enough for the people who have written a thesis on the book that I'm writing something about. <laughs> That's my sweet spot. Uh, so, so I never know what to tell people, really. But I do try to sort of defend the kind of criticism that I practice, which is a little bit off-center, you know? Like, I tend to be interested in things that are a little... Like, things in the film that are on the margins of the film itself, uh, compared to what most mainstream criticism writes about. And also movies that tend to be outliers. I'm always defending what James Walcott chastised me once for calling sick puppies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like movies that have been rejected for one reason or another or, or never broke through. And like, that's kind of also my brand, I suppose, like to the point where I'm kind of a cliche. But uh, but I think that's important. And I think even more important than that is along the way, dissuading people against the kind of thinking that you're talking about, Tony, where it's should I see it or not? That's that's the question that I dread the most um, when people find out that I'm a critic. And in fact, I try not to let people know that I'm a critic if they've never met me, because I know the next question will be, you're a television critic, what should I watch? Should you're I a film watch? critic, what should I watch? And it's like, I don't know you. <laughs> I, I've actually I started telling people, I don't know you, so I would never tell you what you should watch. Like, you know, you could you could read some of my stuff and see if you agree with me or disagree with me, if there's any way to sort of measure your relationship to my opinion and make some decisions based on that. But like, if I recommend something to you and you go see it, you're going to blame me if you don't like it. And I can't have that. It's just too right. much pressure. <laughs> well, and you sometimes get that, you know, sometimes people come up to you um, and, and find out who you, who I am or, or, you know, know who I am and say, well, you know, I want my money back. I went and saw that thing you said was great. And I want to say like, well, that's, you know, it's fine that you didn't like it. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I think what you just said is, is something very important. That is that is why critics have some value, is that we're not just um, giving a recommendation, and we're not just even saying, hey, I like this. Um, we're, we're, we're writing and we're thinking and we're turning this into an argument. And if you read us and get to know us over time, our opinions and our tastes might prove useful to you. So, it, right, if someone just walks up to Matt Cold and says, you know, what, what TV show should I watch? They're not necessarily going to get a, a satisfying answer. But as someone who, who reads Matt um, and has read him for a very, very long time, um, probably more than 20 years, I, yeah. I always go there and think, okay, I know how his mind works. I, I kind of know the stuff he digs. And I can tell, based on my sense between the difference 
my sense of the difference between your taste and mine, you know, whether sometimes I just like to read you and um, think, you know, I'm not going near that. Um, <laughs> I, he's, what he's saying is brilliant, but that just doesn't sound like it's for me. And that's useful too. Thank you. Well, I, I, I do find it kind of sad, but perhaps inevitable that people don't like to have a negative experience at a movie. I actually like to have a negative experience at a movie. And, and one of the things that I tell people when I go to film festivals or I'm speaking to um, journalism students or anybody who's interested in what we do is um, the goal of experiencing a movie, a television show, a painting, a poem, a play, anything should not be to come away saying, yes, that was satisfying. You know, that's right. not it. It's like what you're paying for is the experience of watching the thing. And just like if you decided to go to a country that you've never visited or a state you've never visited or a park you've never been to, there may be some parts of the experience that are pleasurable and others that are not pleasurable at all, but you've had an experience and that's what you're paying for. And and to to kind of simplify it beyond that, I think you risk getting into the realm that you're talking about where it's all about, I have ordered a Big Mac is the Big Mac like the Big Macs that I've had in the past, or is it not? Which I think is when we get into the problem of criticizing superhero movies. Yeah. yeah. And and I'm sorry, like, I'm not backing down on this. I really think that these movies have, with very few exceptions, recently been um, bad for, for movies. They've been bad for movies because they're just so... They're just so assembly line, and when you get something that's an outlier, like an Ant-Man or Guardians of the Galaxy, which is marginally more eccentric than the norm, people mm. can't even believe how original it is. And they wildly overrate it. I think that's that's ex exactly right. I mean, I've I've I felt this way um, for a long time. I think I you know I wrote a piece on how how um, you know the superhero genre had had peaked and was entering its phase of decline, like in. 2007 or 8. So too early. Been, <laughs> Way no, too early. but I was right. It's just, you know, the... the, the you just called the, it there's farther. That's there's all. farther to fall. Right, exactly. No, it's, I, I'm like, you know, like Christian Bale in the big short. You know, I, I know the housing bubble's going <laughs> to pop. It's just, yeah. I was a little premature. Um, it's like but the, one of those doomsday cults that keeps revising the date forward. <laughs> yes, right, right. We went out on the hillside. The world was going to end. It didn't end up. We've recalculated, but I I do think that 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 um, creatively um, I, I absolutely uh, agree with you, and and it's very frustrating because so much talent is sucked into these films. They're very yeah. good, you know, yeah. writers and performers and technical people working on these things um, that are are so constrained by the the imperatives of the franchises and and by the the sameness and the sameness that. Um, you know that 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 whatever whatever wit or originality or fun might be in there is is just so often extinguished. And the movies that don't fit the template tend to be rejected. Yeah. Like and and it's again like the champion of the sick puppy speaking. Um, my favorite movies based on comics properties are things like Popeye. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The first and second Superman movies with Christopher Reeve. Superman yeah. Returns, which I love. I absolutely love that movie. And boy, is that that's like a depressed like Superman is a depressed stalker in that movie. <laughs> yeah. Essentially. Yeah. Yeah. But it's great. And and Ang Lee's Hulk I thought was, you know, kind of a kind of a mess, but really much more interesting than a lot of the stuff that's being made now. And I don't know. An unpopular film comment cover with a fabulous <laughs> midsection <laughs> on Jonas on not Jonas Mikas, excuse me, um Chris Marker. And anyway, leaving aside sick puppies for a second, <laughs> Matt, you do a lot of work with video. Yes. And an interesting question to sort of ask, given that critical culture is changing and now with the advent of 
video, you can literally, you're not describing, you can literally take a scene and you can break it down and you can show it to people instead of just show them through your words. So can we talk a little bit about the future of classic film review versus the new possibilities of multimedia opens up? Well, that's, that's, uh, he played for time. That's a good question. Um, (laughs) The, the classical film review is the thing that I most enjoy writing. Uh, probably, probably the thing that brings me the most pleasure is a classically shaped sort of all things to all people film review where you're talking about the film in totality or attempting to, and you want to talk about the aesthetics, the story, the characters, the themes, the place within the culture, and also maybe crack a few jokes, some of which might land. Um, that's my favorite realm to work in. Um, but I find that the video essays are more creatively exciting for me because I can basically be a, a visual artist, which is what I originally trained to be before I became a writer. And the video essays that I do, some of them are extremely um, traditional in format, where it's basically me talking. And the goal is just as if you and I were sitting together in a restaurant and we're talking about a particular film, we don't have the film in front of us, but we've both seen the film. So when I'm describing a particular scene, you're seeing images from that scene, but we're not watching the scene together. I'm, you know, I'm kind of cutting it up into a montage. I'm freeze framing it and so forth. And then there are other ones that I've done that are a little more abstract, that are not narrated, that are more sort of arranging pieces of material together. And then there are people who are working in the forum who do things that are uh, completely unlike anything that I would ever do. Um, this guy Koganata is working in a very kind of graphics-driven format where he's matching things according to similarity of similarity of color, similarity of composition, and, and drawing these analogies, showing you continuity within a filmmaker's work or within a particular genre. I think that's great. Kevin Lee has kind of turned into the like the Steven Soderbergh or the Howard Hawks of the video essay. I don't think there's yeah. a form he hasn't worked in. It's amazing. But I don't think any of these are ever going to replace written criticism. And I've come to that conclusion after having done now, you know, two books that are basically glorified David Boardwell books about Wes Anderson, one of which David Boardwell actually contributed an essay to, which I'm very proud of. And I've got one on Oliver Stone that's coming out that's kind of the same concept. And as I've worked on these, although I do think the relationship between text and image can enhance our appreciation of both things, there's something to be said for criticism that's just written that's just written and you know like the kind of things that Tony writes one of the one of the reasons why I enjoy reading you is because I see the film through your eyes and that's all the all the critics that I enjoy reading are that way where I don't read like Jonathan Rosenbaum uh, who I think is one of the greats um, I don't agree with him a lot of the time in terms of what he likes or doesn't like or what he thinks is a criteria for judging a movie or a filmmaker but I want to know what he has to say I just because he makes sometimes he makes me angry. Sometimes he, I go, "What the hell is he talking about?" And then I think about it for five minutes and go, "Oh yeah, yeah, I think he has a point about that." And I, I think it's true. I mean, I I, I think um, there is when when you're reading um, a critic, um, it's not that different from reading any other kind of of, of writer. Um, you're looking for the for the voice, for the personality, for the for the for the mind. You know, the evidence of the mind working um, on. On the page, and I mean, I, I've I have worked in some video forums too. I mean, including on 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 television, on you know what was um, the kind of the the last dying breath of the old Siskel and Ebert um, show, and it was it was certainly a lot of fun, and it was a great challenge to try to do what I thought of as real criticism, you know, within a minute and a half, you know, with a hard out for commercial and with with whatever you know clips we could we could we could get from the distributors. Um, and I, I did some some video essays for the for the Times website that were that were really 
um, interesting and challenging to work on and, and to kind of discover how little I needed to talk and how much you could trust the images. And I had a wonderful producer and editor I was working with who could really kind of um, turn, you know, within a few minutes, um, rip scenes and shots from a, from a DVD and turn a film into a kind of poetic encapsulation of itself. And I would just add a few comments in there. Um, but I do agree with Matt that, that the, the real work, the real art of criticism does for me live in, in writing um, and in the challenge, uh, the wonderful challenge of describing something accurately, of doing all of the things that, you're, that, you're, um, that, that you've said within 800 or 1,000 words um, and giving somebody uh, a sense of what, it, of, of, of what it's like to see this movie, um, of what you saw when, when you were seeing it and, and, and doing that in words. Um, and and I, yeah, I, I, never, I never get tired of that. I'm always looking for, in a way, for new ways to do it. And, and, and uh, every movie that's at all interesting kind of pushes you to, to, to find a new, a new way in. I, I've actually had to um, constantly discover and rediscover what, what it means to, to write criticism because depending on who you're writing it for and what the style constraints are, what the length constraints are, and what the focus of the readership is, you have to, you always have to, you kind of, it's almost like you're an actor. It's like, you know, if you're an actor, you're always yourself, but you're also trying to be someone else, which is an interesting challenge. And, and this book that I, on television, uh, it's a TV anthology that I'm writing with Alan Sepinwall. Some of the entries are 500, 1,000, even 2,000 words, but a lot of them are 200 or 250 words. And if you're trying to encapsulate a television show that ran for seven years in 250 words, you're not going to be describing everybody who's ever been on the show. You're not going to go into a lot of detail. You have to instead do kind of what this film critic who I adore, Fernando Croce, does with his very short reviews where they're like one paragraph or two paragraphs long, and he's basically painting. It's like he's drawing a sketch of, of the film on a cocktail napkin, and yet he catches the essence of the film. It's really extraordinary. That's a challenge. And how do you... Can I ask... Um, <laughs> um, how, how you... Because, you, you know, you, you, you migrate between different publications and different kinds of publications. Um, also between two art forms that though they have some similarities um, are are quite distinct and I think uh, require different different kinds of criticism just even you know to, to in the, in the sense that when you're reviewing a movie you're reviewing this singular clearly bounded object that's a hundred minutes long when you're writing about a television program I mean I always wonder with with um, with TV critics, how you decide, in a way, what the text is? Is it the episode? Is it the season? Is it the whole? Is it the whole thing? Um, and how do you, you know, I, how do you switch gears? Uh, they're two different. Those well, forms? they're just two different things. And I think like it's there's probably more similarities between television and movies than there are between, say, movies and theater, mm. which John Simon reviewed simultaneously yeah. for two different publications. And there are examples of other people who are visual arts critics and also film critics, or book critics and also film critics, as you know, yeah. as you well know. And um, But I feel like it's just, um, the main difference I say is that movies are a date and television shows are a relationship, you know? And you can go on one date and that's the end of it. But a television show, if you decide to watch a TV show, you're inviting this thing into your home every week yeah. for anywhere from 10 to 26 weeks a year, not including reruns, although reruns are really not a thing now because of streaming. Right, right. Um, and it's just different. And I would say that the text, I'd never had it posed to me that way before, and it took me a second to figure out how to answer this, but my best answer would be when you're writing about movies, the text is the movie. And when you're writing about 
the television show, the text is a relationship between the television show and you. And because that's the only fixed object, because every minute, every week, every year, the television show is changing. And so you can't get a fixed position on it. If I described Cheers in season one versus Cheers in season seven, they're very different shows. They, and, and, you know, probably there's enough similarities that you wouldn't not recognize it as Cheers, but you know what I'm saying? But it's a pretty different, yeah, I mean, that's a great example. I'm just thinking about, you know, um, the coach at the beginning. I mean, just everything. Wow. Yeah, and you yeah. got a different leading lady, and like <laughs> yeah. Sam is older. Everything is about aging and mortality, yeah. Yeah. and it's a much yeah. darker show near yeah. the end. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and much sillier too. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, returning um, to conversations that you would have on the last incarnation of Cicely at the Nebers. movies, at it was the called movies, then. yes. This week at the movies, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, you include these dialogues in throughout the book. Can you talk about why you chose to do that because they're completely they're in a completely different tone from the rest of it and it's it's sort of almost I don't want to it's sort of That's like That's my a favorite FAQ. part of the book I have to say. Oh. Thank you. It's, it's either favorite people's part favorite book. part of the book or least favorite part of the book. Like every <laughs> every review I've read has been either oh and there are these wonderful dialogues or and there are these you know <laughs> Why did someone not talk him out of that? Yeah. <laughs> um, that was the best part of the book. Don't listen to those people. Yes. Well, I I kind of felt that. I mean, it was described to me um recently by by a, f- a friend of mine as, as as these arguments between myself and my guilty conscience you know who's the the reproachful Q character um, <laughs> it, uh, it I thought of it more as uh, Ed Norton and, and Brad Pitt and <laughs> Fight Club but, but it was know, a little bit I actually did a, a, a performance of, of the second dialogue the one where the questioner just really kind of loses it and goes off on me about um, yeah. what a what a narcissistic Gen X twerp I am. I, I, I did that in performance with my 17-year-old daughter um, oh. a, a couple of times, and that was great, because she was so good at just tearing me down. She just, like, <laughs> even though it was my words, she, she delivered them with such, uh, with such conviction. It, it, I mean, it came about partly because I, I had finished a draft of the book, and, and as happens, um, you know, I had these, these six essays. I think there were actually seven at that point. Um, and I felt like I just wasn't done. Like there was some something that I needed to to say. So I wrote the last one kind of as a as a coda. And I found that I could get to certain ideas a lot more quickly. I mean, the great thing about this format is you can change the subject without a transition because um, you're just it's, it's two people talking. I had been in the course of of writing the book very influenced by Oscar Wilde, by uh, there are these two great essays of his, The Critic as Artist and The Decay of Lying, that are in this dialogue form. And he's able to kind of, in, in a way, act out uh, one, of, one, of, one of his points and one of my arguments in the book, which is that um, criticism is, um, it is dialectical. It's a conversation. It's an endless back and forth. It's an argument that we're having with ourselves and among ourselves all the time. Um, and it kind of worked, and then and then when it came time to revise the books, one of the chapters just didn't work, and I sort of broke it up. And I thought, for one moment, I thought, and I said to my editor, maybe I could just redo the whole book as dialogue, which was I was kind of sensibly um, talked out of. But I, <laughs> but I thought, you know, there was an introduction that wasn't very good. And I thought, well, what if I did the intro that way? And then, kind of the idea of some of these chapters are 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 fairly dense and fairly abstract and it was a way of interrupting that of kind of lightening the tone of bringing a little more personal information in i don't really like the kind of the personal confessional memoir mode very much but a way to to sort of to put a little more of that um in yeah i i enjoyed it and and i also like your 
discussion of other texts that are, if not in form, at least in spirit, sort of guiding this, like Letters to a Young Poet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's funny because I don't know that you ever actually come out and say this book is intended as a guide for the young critic, but that's how it's going to be used by well, a lot of people. And I think that's good. And I th and that is my hope. I mean, because I, I do want it um, to offer kind of encouragement and, and, um, and inspiration in a way. I mean, I, d I don't think... I don't think it's a terribly um, didactic book, but it is a book that I that I hope, um, yeah, can can find some some resonance with with younger people who who um, who are interested in what this is and trying it out. I mean, I, I think, and it's one of the reasons that 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 this book is, you know, in spite of uh, everything and maybe to a fault, an optimistic book, a, a, a book that says, well, look, this is this is important and we can keep doing it. We need to not let go of it and not get too discouraged um, because uh, you know we have to scramble to pay the rent because um, we've always had to scramble to pay the rent. What do you tell what do you tell young critics who say I want to be a critic? Young aspiring critics, do you do you say run the other way or do you or do you say <laughs> no. good luck? What do you say? Well, I say um, first of all it, it's never been a thing, you know, that any that any um, sane guidance counselor has ever encouraged any young person to do. Um, and it's it's not as if there there was there was a time when, you know, um, it was a good idea. <laughs> Right. To, to, as is to established in the book, yeah, as established, it was always like it's it, it's 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 always been. Um, but nonetheless, it's in 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 some ways there there were there was a more um, maybe a more stable uh, um, print economy and 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 it's and a lot more a that, lot more stable. Yeah, it, a lot it more was stable. it was a lot more. I, was, I mean, and and I think you and I both kind of came up toward the end of that, but where it was Well, we, it was we neither of us, we're about the same age, but yeah. we neither of us had any idea that what we were experiencing was the last flowering of Atlantis before it sank into the ocean. Right. <laughs> right. Like, I was, I was brought from Texas to the East Coast. Um, I was 25 years old, and um, I had just been nominated for a Pulitzer, and I was a hot young Turk, and, and they brought me East to write at the Star-Ledger, and I was uh, really, I thought this is just how things worked. Yeah. And I was in a newsroom with, it was a tenth, ninth or 10th largest daily newspaper in the country. Yeah. And we had uh, 400 people on the, on the editorial floor alone. Like it looked like, like, the, like the movie The Apartment. Like that's yeah. what it looked yeah. like. It was yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> and they were spending so much money, they hired all of these writers, not just me, but a lot of writers at that point. And they were heavily trying to compete with the New York papers. And yeah. I remember one time I said, I really want to do a profile of Don Rickles. He's going to be at Atlantic City. Um, can I do this? And they said, no, we don't want to spend money to send you out to Las Vegas to interview him. Uh, in advance of his appearance at Atlantic City, we can't justify that. And I said, fine. And then somebody found out that Alex Witchell was going to write a profile of him for the New York Times Magazine. Mm -hmm. And they immediately got me a ticket and sent me out there the next day. And God knows how many thousands of dollars it cost. And it was all just so that they could have a big profile before the Times did. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think of people... Of Don Rickles. Of Don freaking Rickles. Who had Rickles. no Don movie. Rickles. No, he had no movie. I think he was in Casino at the time. Yeah, but basically, yeah. it was just because they wanted to, to steal a piece of cheese off of the New yeah, York Times' yeah, plate. Yeah. That was all it was about. No, I mean, I, I, I remember... I mean, we, we could we could... We could just have a whole a whole nostalgia party in there, but but it was um, you know my my first steady freelance gig was was reviewing books for for Newsday, which had expanded you know off of Long Island into the New York market. They hired me originally. Was, did yeah, you know that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which and then they gonna... fired me because they <laughs> shut down the New York paper. Well, that's what I mean. That's what what sadly happened. But they had a big book sub supplement that that Laurie Muchnick ed edited that had terrific people writing in it and. Um, 
you know, I wasn't going to get rich off, but it was like, okay, I, I can, I can, uh, you know, I, I, I can pay my rent. I can put something away for my kids. I can, um, writing, writing book reviews. And there was lots of, there, there was that moment, the kind of, of the first dot-com boom before, before it, it killed print, where it was still dependent, where there were all these new magazines selling all of these ads, hungry for this Talk kind of magazine, content. you remember them? Yes, Talk magazine. That, uh, they I, were spending, they were practically throwing money out of helicopters. It was ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and, and they had also like the fattest, I did a piece for them which never ran, you know. <laughs> um, I got, and, and finally I... I, I Everyone it, has done that, yes, apparently. Yes. Everyone in New York has written a piece for Talk that got killed. Yes, uh, and I actually, I managed to, to extract a kill fee, but I remember it was the first time I'd ever seen, it was the fattest contract, you know, because it was, it was Miramax and, and right. Disney, so you had to sign away, you know, theme park rights <laughs> to your... <laughs> DNA. To, to, your, to this piece I was writing, and yeah. I thought this was, you know, I was supposed to write like a... a, a what, is this about, of, what is this about air rights? <laughs> Exactly, but uh, yeah. So so now, getting back to your to your to your question, um, you know, we're we're in we're in much uh, leaner, um, tougher times. But um, I I think you know I I encourage um, young critics um, uh, to get out there and write. I mean, you know, it it is true that that you can um, you can put yourself out there and you can develop your voice. There are fewer barriers to entry. Now you don't have to worry in the same way about collecting clips and sending those clips, and and you can write about what you want to write about. Um, but I think you need to find people. I think the most important thing, and the way it seems to work um, in 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 the digital world now, is that you know you kind of find find a posse or a tribe of people who you can get together and try to make something with, um, and also you know still find your way to those those places that can. Um, that can pay a little bit of money, um, including I think you're, you know the 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 Ebert site, you know, um, which which isn't necessarily going to finance any terribly lavish lifestyles, but <laughs> no. but but is is gonna is gonna pay people something for the work they do. Well, yeah, and it's also um, one of the th reasons why people continue to write for the site even after they have gotten to the point in their career where they get much more high profile assignments yeah. than that to pay a lot more, is because we edit. We edit yeah. like and and I'm increasingly finding that that is something that that is the thing that I think has gone missing that troubles me the most. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm not sure. just saying that you know who's editing this stuff. Like I don't mean that. Like in the comment section way, I mean in the sense that I had editors who taught me yeah. how to do not just what I do most of the time, but a lot of other things that I don't have to do very often, but I know how to do. Yeah. If I want to find out where somebody lives, I know how to do it. If I want to find out if they're registered to vote, I know how to do it. I know there are all of these really basic journalism things that I know how to do that most people don't know how to do. And I find, you know, working with writers, most of whom are in their 20s, who they've been to journalism school, but they haven't been to a newspaper. And it's when you go to a newspaper or a magazine and you work with other journalists who've been doing it that you start to learn the real shit, as they yes, say. Yes, yeah, yeah. And, and, that's, that, and I'm consistently shocked when I read, and I've written about this before, and I sound like, old, you know, cane-waving old man here, but... Wave it, away. It really bothers me when I see, like, what passes for a lot of film journalism is 
I wonder if blah blah blah. Yes, yes I wonder yes. if blah blah blah. It's like stop writing those. Like you look like such an idiot when you write a story like that because right. these are artists. They can't wait to talk about all their own work. Right. They can't right. wait. All you got to do, if you're wondering, like, was that image in that film? Like I read the story online. I hate to embarrass this person, but I read a story online saying, was that a shot of Christopher Reeve that I saw in that montage sequence of Man of Steel? It's like, well, you don't have to pose it as a question. You can actually call the studio. Yeah, and say, can you put me on the phone with the editor of this, and I and and you can have your question answered that afternoon. Yeah, no, you can, in 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 twenty minutes. Like, Absolutely. there's a lot of things that don't need to be crowdsourced. But that, right. but that's also that's also engineering a discussion, right. in the comments section. Like, see, that's it, it's see, you know, again, maybe, but I don't see the utility of that compared no. to. I think a, I think a, it sucks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think like engineering a discussion in the comment section is is this particular type of film a positive or negative development in in cinema history, or is it, you know, are these images stereotypical or harmful? Like that's a comment section discussion that's useful. Is not is this what I think it is? You know, it's like you're a reporter. Go go find out. <laughs> well, it, it reminds me a little bit of that of that great uh, scene in While We're Young. You know, when when when. Uh, I think the Adam Driver character, you know, Ben Stiller wants to look it up on his phone. He said, let's just not know. Let's just not <laughs> I know, know. yes. Let's just not know. I've done know. that. I've done that too. <laughs> well, maybe we can sort of continue. My favorite chapter in this book uh, was how to be wrong. Mm. And it's interesting because you're not, you say it's like, I'm not going to do do's and don'ts because those are always just get blown out of the water. Right. And it's silly. So you sort of like try to talk through these fallacies or like these yeah bad temptations were there any that you would like to you feel like he missed or you would like to expound <laughs> upon because there could have more. been a that's the longest chapter in the book it yeah. could have been three or four times yes long. <laughs> well there's a lot of ways to be there's factual ways to be wrong and then there's what they say are wrong opinions and i don't necessarily believe that there are wrong opinions mm. they're only poorly argued and well-argued opinions and to give you one example roger ebert panned blue velvet and one of the reasons he panned Blue Velvet was he thought that the cruelty of it, the the sadistic violence in it, was so har- harrowing, particularly with regard to Isabella Rossellini's character, that he didn't think the film earned the right to it. And almost no one else said that. And I don't particularly agree with it. However, it's impossible for me to see that film or anything David Lynch has ever made without thinking of that review. So he planted that thought in my head, and I don't think that's a bad thing. Even if I think he was wrong on the merits of that movie, I think it's not a bad thing that I have that rattling around in my head. Well, I think that's exactly right. And and in a way, the way that, that you're wrong um, is to take a strong position and to make a strong argument, which is what you have to do. I mean, it's why it, why I do say it's the, it's the job to be wrong. Um, because I agree with you in that case. I have actually a, a student now who's writing a senior thesis that it, uh, very much deals with questions of sadism and cruelty and comes um, has a lot to say about that review um, in particular. And I think that there are a lot of similar reviews that I can think of um, that I may not disagree with, but I mean, I, I think always about um, Mary McCarthy uh, wrote a couple of, of, when she was a theater critic, um, some very strongly dissenting reviews of, of, of Arthur Miller and Tennessee Williams and the kind of the great American realist playwrights of, of, of the mid-century. And um, I always think of what she had to say about um, Death of a Salesman. I always go see Death of a Salesman. Death of a Salesman is, is, a, is a play that's intriguing to me and, 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 and haunting. Um, and, you know, I 
took my kids to see it when when Philip Seymour Hoffman and Andrew Garfield were were doing it on Broadway. But that's as you say with 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 the 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 Ebert Blue Velvet piece. When I think of Mary McCarthy saying, you know, these are not people; these are sociological abstractions. Um, th this is this is you know these these are ideas that the playwright has about human beings rather than facts that he's observed about human beings. You know, I, I have to think, I have to take that seriously. I have to, I have to, I have to weigh that. Um, can, I, can I just say, though, here's the thing that, that gnaws at me, that keeps me up at night sometimes, which is um, ultimately all of this rationalization that we do, does it get us any closer to the truth? And I ask that because you're describing Death of a Salesman, which is one of my favorite plays. And my favorite experience that I've had in New York, New York theater was seeing the Robert Falls production from the 90s with Brian Dennehy yeah. as Willie Lemon. And that remains the only stage play that I've paid to see on Broadway three times. Mm -hmm. And I told Brian Dennehy that when I met him recently, and he immediately said, how much do I owe you? Which <laughs> that was a great comeback. But I agree with everything that Mary McCarthy says about that, but I still love that play. Yeah. And I think, like, is it such a bad thing if the characters are sociological abstractions as opposed to fully fleshed out people? Right. Doesn't it depend on the movie? And I've and I've seen movies where the characters are proudly two dimensional, and I think they're amazing yeah. films. Yeah. And I don't miss the fact that they're not psychologically fully rounded in the way that realistic fiction would like them to be. And then there are other times where the characters are practically like case files; they're so detailed. But I feel like they don't have any life in them, and I yeah. wish they were a little simpler. Yeah. And I don't know, like, why this and not that. And and it's a it it I mean it it. it I think one of the ways that we do often go wrong, but again, it's kind of necessarily go go wrong, is 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 to try to find programmatic or general answers to these questions. I mean, because we do, and it's important as critics that we're always we're always going on the case in front of us. We're always looking at at um, trying to look at the thing for what it is and understand it in its own terms. But it's inevitable that we will bring not only our personal baggage, but that we will develop. Um, preferences and ideas and 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 beliefs about what is um valuable what's important um and and i think you know for me just just staying on willie loman for a minute i mean i've i've been obsessed since i was a book critic and and remain intrigued and troubled by the whole question of realism and what we mean when we talk about it yeah because it can mean so many so many different things um, and it changes from one generation to the next it changes from one generation to, to to the next and it and it may or may not um, have anything to do in the end with the literal accuracy of, of, of what's being depicted and and when I think about realism I also find myself thinking at the same time more and more about allegory you know about the way that that stories narratives plots are in a way always allegorical and 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 people you know have a uh, often have a sort of a literal minded response to a to a movie's story um that well well that wouldn't have happened it wouldn't have happened that way that didn't make any sense but of right. course if it's if it's at all an interesting movie the the things that happen and the things that people do are being arranged in a certain way to 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 evoke something that has some meaning that may just not be a matter of, of, of literal naturalistic accuracy. Vertigo is my favorite example of that. <laughs> yeah, right. Vertigo is an absolutely terrible, terrible representation of the practice <laughs> of being a private detective. You can't <laughs> learn anything about being a private detective in the right. real world from watching right. Vertigo. Right. And the bad guy's plot, if you think about it for four seconds, doesn't make any sense. Right. Doesn't make any. It's one of those plots where, like, if one single tiny thing went wrong, you know, what if <laughs> yes. what if when Jimmy Stewart is going up the stairs, 
he doesn't have vertigo. What if that's the one time he doesn't like? What if that's right. the moment where he gets over his vertigo? I mean, you it's know like what I mean? The opposite yeah. of dilemma for murder, where it's like everything is perfect, and then by some magical yeah. thing, right. the police right. figure it out. Right? But, yeah. But that's not why you watch Vertigo. Exactly. Right. You know. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. But you were talking earlier about, you know, you read Matt, and you understand what his taste is. Can we talk a little bit about the idea of tracking taste and when you're when you're reading somebody what what those criteria may or may not be, or come to an understanding of that. I think it's very important in a way. I mean, I think of, of, of all of the critics that have, have um, meant something to me over the, the, the years and who I go back and, and read, um, and I have a very strong awareness of their taste. I mean, certainly, you know, you, you, you could read um, Pauline Kael and you can go back and, and, and kind of, you know, track her, her taste. And she's certainly, you know, there are, there are inconsistencies, there are contradictions, there are, there are reversals, there are things that just seem um, completely unfair and, and arbitrary. But there is a sense of, you know, of who is perceiving these things and, and, and why she's saying what she's saying. I spent a lot of time when the first critics who I think I really read as a kid, you know, with great um, devotion and interest were, were music critics, were rock critics, um, were like Grill Marcus and Robert Crisco. And and, um, and they were coming from a very different place from what, I mean, they were they were older and they were sort of steeped in this rock and roll mythology um, and, and were all like obsessed with Elvis Presley. And I was never a big... Elvis fan, but just reading them and and being able to know and to understand where they were coming from and why they liked what they liked, and I think that's true of of, of Roger Ebert as well. I mean, you can track the thread of humanism, you know that that was that was his his kind of defining um, principle, and you can see how it manifests itself differently and how it's sometimes surprising. The, the, the other thing about the taste of critics, um, as of of you know any people that that's exciting is that you can't always predict you know you could you could you could um start a review um thinking oh i i know you know i i i the living master of what i call the exploding cigar review is richard brody yeah. yes <laughs> there's a many many times i love richard richard is one of my favorite working film critics and and one of the things i love that he does is he will write a review where you think like if you're in agreement with what appear to be his sentiments yes he's laying them out and it's basically it's a rope-a-dope strategy like he's getting you to go yeah yeah here comes Richard standing up for exactly my point of view and then you realize oh my god he's just examining the architecture so that he can plant the explosives yes. and destroy <laughs> turn it. the thing entirely yeah. upside down yeah. Yeah. but that's fun and there's all there's all kinds of different ways to do it there are people who write um, almost entirely about form there are people who concentrate very heavily on theme mm -hmm. images of representation historical facts and and you know movies ignorance thereof and it's all, you know, it's all valid. It's not, there's not just one way to go about it. I do think, and I'm just, I repeat this all the time to the point where people wish I'd shut up about it, but I would love, the one thing I would love to see more in mainstream criticism is more discussion of form. Mm. More discussion of how form articulates content, because there are still, 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 still too many film reviews being written that are basically book reports. And they're ignoring the essence of the movie, which is how it says what it's saying or what you think I, it's saying. Yeah, I, I I agree with you with with the um, the the qualification uh, which which I touch on a little bit in, in in the book is that it's very easy and important um, to be in favor of talking about form. It's it's much harder to talk about what form is, what the boundaries of form are um, in maybe in particular with film, which is such a complicated hybrid 
art form. I absolutely agree with you. And then um, I find myself very often, you know, in a kind of a both a theoretical and a practical quandary when I'm trying to figure out when I'm trying to um, to follow your advice or obey your uh, your instructions. And I can't figure out, you know, where where do, where does form leave off and anything else begin? I always think a great practical guidepost is if I am making an assertion about how characters are represented or how a piece of the story is put forward or not put forward, what is evidence of the failure? Mm. And the evidence of the failure is very likely something that is formal. Like a woman is in theory being treated equally to a man in a movie and being given her dignity, and yet the camera angle is from high down so we can look down her blouse. That's a detail that we can mention. Like, mm-hmm. and, that's yeah. a, and that's a point of view. That's, that's where the camera was put. So that's you know that doesn't have anything to do with the written text. That's that's a matter of directorial articulation, but that helps buttress your case, and and also I just think it's fun. It's just fun. <laughs> it's fun to write. It's like fun sandbox to play in. Well, that's it makes movies movies. You know, you're not even discussing half of it if you're you're only focusing on it and on a textual level or like when you say like a book report. But um, Anton Ego was right though. You know, like uh, I I really think everybody, you know, everybody is a critic. Everybody's a critic. And like people, I have so many conversations with people who say, well, I, I'm not a critic like you. And then it's followed by some amazing insight yes. that yes. I would never in a million years have had because of their life experience or, you yeah. know, yeah. or they know something about a, f- a particular field or, or just because, you know, they're a philosopher or they quote me a line of poetry that suddenly snaps everything into place in a way that it wasn't before. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I've, I've came to believe it, you know, more and more strongly as I worked on this book that there there's not a really a an important boundary or distinction I mean yes there are there are some people who who do things for a living but as as we know the distinction between being a professional and an amateur is not necessarily a distinction between being better or worse at someone else I mean there are people who you know who can cook better meals than you'll eat at any restaurant who just work in their own kitchen Right, and they and they maybe don't know how to cook as many different things as a professional chef, might. right? Or they can't do it under difficult they conditions. Yeah, they couldn't do it seven nights a week. Yeah. Right, and yeah, and I always tell people that's the main that's the main difference between like you, the film buff who just goes to the movies and watches them on TV, and me is I can write a reasonably coherent review in thirty minutes. Yeah, because I've been doing it for almost thirty years, and that's the only reason. Yeah, no, there's discipline and there's and there's craft. I mean, I the other analogy that often occurs to me is like stand-up comedians, you know, because there are a lot of really, really funny people um, in the world and people who can, can tell mm-hmm. jokes and, and crack up a room. But to be able to do it, you know, out on the road in, in, in difficult conditions in front of a hostile crowd again and again, <laughs> it's a different kind of thing. Right. And, and I just and I think that, that it really is um, a matter of craft and of, of technique. And, and I think also, as you were saying before, of, of learning some of the discipline of the trade, um, of, of which... which goes with being a writer or a journalist um, of, of any kind. Seeking out mentors is really important, and do it if you're if you're a critic or, or you want to be a critic and you've come into this and you're in your 20s, find a mentor. Doesn't You know, if there's somebody who just, they know what they're doing, it doesn't even matter if they're a critic, if they're a professional journalist, just find a mentor. Yeah. Work out whatever deal you have to and find them, because unless you're working for some place and they have time for you, a lot of times you can't, even if you get a job, they don't have, people don't have time right. to mentor right. you, because everybody's being asked to do 16 things, where 20 years ago when I was starting out, they were, they were doing one or maybe two yeah. things. Yeah. Because we're all working people, and we're <laughs> running out of time. I think we'll end it there. This was a really lovely discussion, but... Uh, before we close, as we always do, I'm going to ask 
uh, you both. Um, what was a film that you saw recently that you liked? Matt, you can go first. Well, this is, I guess, a little bit of a wild card, but I went to see The Finest Hours, which my 12-year-old son wanted to see on his birthday. I don't know why. He always picks weird films, like films you wouldn't think a 12-year-old boy would want to see. Like He wanted to see Birdman, which I, I think maybe because he thought it was a superhero film. <laughs> um, but we went to see that, and I really, really liked it. And I wouldn't say it's a great movie by any stretch, but it feels like a movie that could have been made in about 1950 because of the look of it and the tone of it and the values that it expresses. Um, I'm going to go with what I, th I think is already my favorite movie of, of 2016 and probably will will stay on that list, um, which is uh, Aferim, uh, Radu Jude's um, widescreen black and white Romanian Western, um, which I just is is so is so good. It's very I mean, I think it's 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 come and gone and. Um, you know, it's it's unfortunate because it, it it should be seen um, in 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 optimal viewing circumstances. It's just such a, a visual uh, delight, and it's such a great story. And it's got um, it feels like a John Ford movie, or it feels like a Tarkovsky movie. It feels like a bunch of different things at once, and it's just this window into this society, into to mid nineteenth century uh, Wallachia, I guess is the room the the Romanian region that it takes place in. But it. I just find it satisfying on so many different levels. Like it's one of these movies that um, I learned a lot about history that I didn't know, um, and also I was being brought into a set of human experiences that were vivid and persuasive, and in some ways familiar. Um, it's got a great performance. Uh, the lead actor who plays this kind of um, basically sort of a sheriff, you know, is going out to um, to to capture a prisoner and bring him back. And then mine to close was uh, Nightmare Alley, which is. <laughs> <laughs> Say that into the microphone. That is so good. <laughs> you win. <laughs> it wasn't a competition, but I have no. I just happened to rewatch it again recently, and I'm just like, it's it's like scary how good and messed up, and just I mean, also like his life, the the author's life, everything about him is just like just gin soaked misery, and like. It's a that's the title of my memoir, by the way. <laughs> it's a, that's a, and that's a it's a cautionary tale. I mean, I think you know that we sh that's probably a movie we should show to all young aspiring <laughs> critics. Like you know, the word geek means does not mean what you think it means. <laughs> that's true. Thank you all for coming. Thank it's you. Wonderful. It's wonderful. Fun. You've been listening to the Film Comet podcast. Produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapol, with music by Greg Anji. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years. <laughs>